up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13, Hebrews 13. I do intend, Lord willing, to conclude our study of the book of Hebrews today. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13, and we will be looking today at verses 20 through 25. Now that you've got your Bibles there, some of you, almost everybody, I want you to grab a Pillars of Truth. Pillars of Truth. I want to use... Question number 135 that's on page 166, turn to page 166 as part of my introduction going into today's message. Page 166. This, of course, is dealing with the doctrine of prayer. And we find here on page 166 in question 135, the following question. What is required unto that prayer which shall please God and be heard of Him? The answer that is offered here in the subsequent scripture citations is, we ask of the only true God who hath manifested Himself in His word all things which He hath commanded to be asked of Him with the true affection and desire of our heart, and through an inward feeling of our need and misery, cast ourselves down prostrate in the presence of His divine majesty, and build ourselves on this sure foundation, that we, though unworthy, yet for Christ's sake, are certainly heard of God, even as he hath promised us in his word. We're going to be dealing with, once again, prayer in our passage today, as will become evident, and I hope you'll see that many of these truths or these themes will be coming to the surface during the message and the understanding of our text for today. Let us now go back to Hebrews 13, and let's begin at verse 17, read to the end of the chapter, and we'll open up with a word of prayer. Hebrews 13, beginning with verse 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give an account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience, in all things willing to live honestly. But I beseech you, the rather to do this, that I may be restored to you sooner. Now the God of peace, that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do His will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation, for I have written a letter unto you in few words. Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty, with whom, if he come shortly, I will see you. Salute all them that have the rule over you and all the saints. They of Italy salute you. 
Grace be with you all. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, once again we quiet our souls before your majestic throne of grace and we ask you, O Father, to send thy spirit, reveal more and more as you have already done in this blessed epistle of the truths related to thy beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, our High Priest, and as we learn today also, described as our Great Shepherd. Make him more, O God, effectual in our hearts. Enlarge and inflame, dear Lord, our desire and our love to know him more. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Last Lord's Day, in verses 18 and 19, we considered the importance of and the need of prayer for one another as Christians in the household of God. But you'll recall in verses 18 and 19 with that phrase, pray for us, we especially considered the need for the church to pray for elders and pastors, especially that they would persevere in being faithful in leading the household of God in all truth and in ways of godliness. I hope you'd agree that it's quite fitting that this first century pastor to highlight the importance of prayer as he comes to the close of this letter. Having already faithfully admonished them regarding the dangers of turning away from the grace that is available in the new covenant, and the dangerous ditches of returning back to the old covenant ways with all of its ceremonial trappings, uh, offering blood which cannot cleanse one from sin. He now comes here and he realizes and he understands that if they have any hope of suffering, as he says in the text today, or accepting his exhortation. Did you see there that he said his exhortation, this entire sermonic letter? Did you see there he said, in a few words, right? So you can imagine how long this sermon was originally, you know, written and took. Um, He knows that if there's any hope for this exhortation, this warning that's rooted, we've already seen in pastoral love, he knows it's got to come by the grace of God. God has to work within them. And so he knows that that's going to require prayer. And so it's not surprising to us that he comes here and he's focusing upon it at the close of his letter. Well, if last week there was a focus on the need to pray for leaders that they would remain faithful unto the end, we see today in this closing prayer that now he offers up, beginning with verse 20, that's what we have here. This, this Some people call it a benediction. Uh, a benediction, young ones, is just an invocation to God to, to grant divine guidance. Oh God, give us divine leadership. God, give us divine blessings at the close of something you write to someone. And so some people could see this in verse 20 beginning as a, a, a grand benediction, uh, a grand prayer that this old pastor here or a group of pastors are writing to give unto this first century church. And I want us to consider this closing text in two ways. There's a prayer that's concentrated in verses 20 and 21. Look at your Bibles. He begins it, now the God of peace that brought again from the Lord. He begins it with verse 20, and then he gets to really the heart of the request in verse 21. What is he asking for? What is he wanting in this benediction? What is he requesting of God on their behalf to make them perfect in every good work? And so he sets forth in verse 20 
really these five important truths that are foundational in anchoring these Christians who he had to exhort to remember the blessed reality of the new covenant to ground them at the close of this letter in the assurance of the gospel that they had already professed. He does that first in verse 20 in order to enlarge in their assurance and everything that he's proceeded to say before he even gets to the request of equipping them in verse 21. And then in verse 22, there's a little bit of a transition you see there. He makes an appeal to them. And then in verses 23 through 25, there's just some closing comments regarding, um, you know, uh, Timothy and others that uh, he wants them to respect that they're there and the church in the midst that they're around. So let us begin in this, what you could say, benediction or this heart of a pastor and understanding initially in verse 20, these five foundational truths, which were to encourage them and grant them further assurance in the gospel that they had already professed. The first truth we see right away in verse 20 that he wants to ground them in, and that is this attribute of God. He says, he doesn't just say now, oh, I pray now that God may. No, he says, now the God of peace, this attribute of God. Now, by referring to God as the God of peace, this writer is, of course, drawing upon much of the groundwork, isn't he, of what he's already established in this letter to them. Recall how he labored to demonstrate how the old covenant, that is the Mosaic covenant, with all of its sacrificial trappings, it can never provide sinful man true permanent peace. No, 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 it can never do that. He always reminded them it only afforded them temporal, you could say annual, year-by-year appeasement of God's wrath. But it can never give those under that economy or that covenant structure true rest and true peace. Let's look at chapter 10. Just turn back a couple pages to chapter 10. He, he really emphasized it there beginning with verse 1. He, he, he really was trying to get them to see that. Let's look at just verses 1 through 4. The law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect, complete, you see. For then they would not, be, they would not have ceased to uh, be offered because that the worshippers once purged should have no more conscience of sin. He's highlighting the inferiority of it. Verse 3, But in those sacrifices, under that old covenant system, under that arrangement with God, those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sin every year. Verse 4, for for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Although that old covenant was unable to provide ultimate and lasting peace with God through Christ, God, today, verse 20, the God of peace, Praise be to God. He made it possible for sin for sinful man to obtain peace with him, to obtain final uh, rest, didn't he? Jump down to verses 10 through 14 of the same chapter. We see that. By the which will we are, all of us who are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, 
Oh, the God of peace, you see. This man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, notice it's completed. He sat down at the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. By pointing to God's attribute of peace. We see here at the opening of this benediction, this pastor's prayer for these saints in the first century. This inspired writer is further grounding them in their only insurance of the truth of the gospel. And that is what? We just, we've been acknowledging it so far the whole service today. The finished work of Christ. That's our gospel hope. That is the new covenant reality that's been established. That is how anyone can look upon God as the God of peace and not the God of wrath. Flashback to Genesis chapter 7 and the whole lesson that we saw there. But wishing to still build upon the foundation of their gospel assurance in the new covenant, that which is the overarching theme of this letter, ground them in the assurance of the reality of what Christ has done. It's been his entire uh, operation. We now, he now moves their attention from the attribute of God to a work of God. Back to verse 20. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the second foundational thing he's using to reassure them in the new covenant? It is this glorious work of God in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, when we consider the thoughtful insertion of mentioning Christ's resurrection at this point in this epistle, doesn't it go without saying that if Christ had not miraculously demonstrated final victory over death in the grave, then the peace of God that is offered through the sacrifice of Christ would not bring very much peace, would it? Wouldn't bring very much comfort. Recall, dear brothers and sisters, that Jesus' earthly ministry contained within its message this primary focused reality, which is the hope and victory over the cursed reality of physical death and the eternal damnation can only be found in faith in Him. Jesus, when speaking to Martha regarding the resurrection, he told Martha, you know the scripture well in John 11, 25-26. He says, I am the resurrection. He says, Martha, I am the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, they will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Beloved, think for a moment. For a Messiah to speak like this, and yet himself not experience nor demonstrate resurrection victory over death, would not only have betrayed the promises that he held forth in his message, but also it would have mocked the very plan of God and it would have overturned the confidence of all of those who had believed it. Oh, that's not the case here though. We see that the attribute of God, the God of peace, also worked wonderfully and miraculously in the resurrection of the Messiah and as we see confirmed in our passage here, Christ was victoriously raised from the dead, demonstrating that God the Father accepted Jesus' penal substitutionary death, fulfilling, as we'll see in a moment, 
some sort of arrangement or eternal agreement. According to 1 Corinthians 15, 17, Jesus' resurrection being mentioned here in our verse today, it remains the guarantee that you and I have that all of our sins are forgiven, that we have been delivered from the wrath and the future judgment flashback back to Genesis 7, which will come upon all someday. We've been preserved from that, 1 Thessalonians 1.10. And furthermore, we too will be raised in His presence even after we experience physical death. 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, in light of all of these biblical truths, which are meant to anchor our assurance in the finished, atoning, victorious work of Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ can rightly be called one of the everlasting cornerstones, amen, of our faith. He has not mentioned the resurrection hardly at all throughout this entire epistle. He has been focusing on the superiority of Christ's priesthood and His atoning blood. Oh, but when He gets to the end of the letter, you see the heart of this pastor who's wanting to encourage them to remain faithful, be reassured in the finished work of the Messiah, and He has to bring in the resurrection because that's exactly how vital it is. Where there is no resurrection, Paul tells us, our faith is in vain. Having drawn their attention to our faithful God and Father, His attribute and His work, He now comforts their soul. Oh, beloved, look at the text with me. Comforts their soul by shifting their gaze now to Christ, the beloved Son, who He describes, you see it in your Bibles, as the great shepherd of the sheep. And so what's the third encouragement to grant them, anchor them more in the new covenant realities to persevere unto the end? It is this title for Jesus. There is the attribute of God, the work of God, and now the title for Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. Now, thus far in this letter, uh, and remember kids, this is what this is. This is a real actual letter that we're reading that the Holy Spirit inspired a man, many to believe to be the Apostle Paul. Nene, we were talking about this before church. Nene said, just on a side note, she said we were talking about the letter uh, to the Hebrews. And she said, wasn't that written by Apostle Paul? I said, well, a lot of people believe that, but we're not real sure. And she goes, oh yeah, I learned that in this uh, one kid's Bible thing she watches. She said they had, since we don't know for sure, they had a man wearing a paper sack over his head writing the, the letter because we don't know his identity exactly. And that is true, Nene. We can't be dogmatic of who, the, uh, who wrote the letter, but we do know this, and we can be dogmatic about this, beloved, right? That he was inspired supernaturally, by the Holy Spirit, given the thoughts to write, and he wrote them. We all can say that. And it's interesting that up until this point in the letter, this inspired writer has used many descriptors, many adjectives, to accurately portray our risen Lord. For instance, Hebrews 1, 2-4, you remember? Jesus our Lord is described as the Almighty God and the Creator of all things. Then he goes on in the epistle, chapter 3, verse 1. And I don't even have all of them, but there's plenty in, in here to suffice and make my point. Hebrews 3, 1, he's described as the capital A apostle and the high priest of our profession. He described him in that, in that section of the letter as being greater than Moses. 
Hebrews 4 and then over in, in chapter 5, he described him as the great, capital G, the great and the high priest who offer sacrifices for his people. And he was doing that in contrast to the old covenant priest. No, he is different. He is the great, the great high priest, not like those inferior priests. Chapter 7, you remember, he was described as the kingly priest in the order of Melchizedek. He is a king. Oh, he's got a crown we sung today. A crown of many crowns. This is how he's been lifting up Christ, the grand potentate of our salvation. Don't ever look back to the old covenant ways. Hebrews 8, verses 1 through 3. He's the one described as sitting on the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven and a minister in a heavenly tabernacle. Not a physical one here, earthly, lowly. No, he's in the grand heavenly tabernacle. He's at the right hand of the majesty on high. But beloved, while all these titles are, of course, befitting of the divine majesty of our Lord Jesus, here for the first time, and incidentally, toward the close of a letter where he's wanting them to be built up in the assurance of their faith, he offers, does he not, one last title, a great shepherd. Unlike the other titles, this one, upon initial consideration, it just doesn't quite convey the same grandeur, the same pompous significance as the other ones, does it? A shepherd? Oh, but over here, a king, the high priest, sitting on the majesty of high. At first glance, it doesn't seem as a befitting descriptor of the Lord Jesus, the risen Lord, that he's just described in verse 20. Yet upon further reflection, we discover that perhaps this description is the most accurate of them all because it gets to the very heart, the very center of Jesus' love as a husband for his bride, the church. He will guard. He will watch. He will supply her every need. And He will protect. Do you see how when we just meditate upon this title, our assurance, our faith, that may be, as we sung, tempted, getting weak, getting clouded, it's cleared away. No, He is our great shepherd. In fact, in the Gospels, Our incarnate Lord was fond of oftentimes describing himself as a shepherd, not a king, not a a grand leader. One such example is found in John 10, verses 14 and 16. You know the verse well. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. I have other sheep. And he was talking about after that time, of that first century, the first ones that came to him. I have other sheep that you and I that are not of this fold, this generation. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock and one shepherd. The other apostles, I don't. I think it's a far stretch to think that Peter wrote this. In fact, I don't know if anyone agrees that he does. But Peter was often fond of describing the Lord Jesus as a shepherd as well. He says in 1 Peter 2.25, you, referring to the church, you are straying like sheep, 
But now you've returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. When we are drifting as Christians, when we, as this first century church was doing, drifting from the realities of the new covenant and the grace and the uh, assurity we have in the gospel of Christ, it seems as though there is somewhat of a pattern here, I will say. A pattern is be reminded that Christ is your great shepherd. Oh yes, he's that divine glorious king upon high. Oh yes, he is sitting at the right hand of the father upon high. Oh, but friends, never lose sight when your faith is weak. Never lose sight when you, as we will see in a moment, will indeed fall and fail. That he is your great shepherd. He is your great shepherd. The term shepherd, especially in this context, being written to this first century Jewish community who converted to Christianity would have been very familiar to them. They were accustomed of God referring to himself as a shepherd or a faithful husband. They were familiar with the monarchs and the national leaders by the prophets being described as shepherds. And so considering this, we see that this pastor is employing this term inspirationally and strategically to remind them that Jesus, your shepherd, as you move forward, being corrected with this word, these few words of exhortation, he says in the text, and he knows the persecution that will continue to come upon them. Your great shepherd sees you. He loves you. He will be faithful and he will watch over you until you are reunited with him someday. Unlike earthly leaders, notice that he's described as the great shepherd. We sing it in our hymns, do we not? Although friends and foes, although friends fail me and foes assail me, he is a friend unto the end. Amen? Well, fourthly, we learn that next that this title, this title of the great shepherd, it's not one that's bestowed upon Christ without merit or without purchase price. For we see in our text, it's followed by the reality that this great shepherd laid down his life, did he not? His own life's blood for the sheep, which earns him in our hearts this endearing title. He brought again, O God the Father, from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through, Calvin likes the interpretation, in the blood, still retains the same meaning, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood, through the blood, through the blood, the purchased title of the great shepherd endears within our hearts even more the assurance that our salvation is secured, it's sealed, and it's finished. Now, although the thought of a kingly priest, a religious leader being murdered on a bloody cross alongside common thieves is frowned upon as a sign of weakness and failure by many, to us, the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, the blood of our Lord, the cross of our Lord, it is a foundational cornerstone next to the resurrection that flows from its many blessings. In the context of this letter, meant to anchor us and ground us and fortify us against the doubts that emanate from within and the attacks that come upon us from without. You see, to the eyes of faith, the cross of Christ demonstrates immense power 
not weakness. In fact, the sacrifice and the offering of blood in connection with sin has been a powerful lesson taught by God since the very beginning of human history. We go back, don't we, to our Old Testament readings in the book of Genesis. And right there in the garden, God was teaching something in the sacrifice of the animal to cover the trespass, the sin of Adam and Eve, and to clothe them. He was teaching that sin is connected with a sacrifice. Sin is serious. We saw it in Genesis 7 today. God doesn't turn a blind eye to it. If he did, he would not be a just God. He would be an unjust God. He would be a God that we can laugh at. He would be a God that could be mocked. No, sin has consequences and it requires blood. And recall how earlier in this epistle, back in chapter 9, verse 22, the inspired writer reminded us of this. He said, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Now we know under the old covenant, as we've already stated, the blood of those animals cannot take away sin. It could only appease sin. It could appease the wrath of God, didn't it? But nonetheless, blood still was required. There was still an optic lesson being taught there all the time. And it was, as we learned in chapter 9, verse 10, kept there until the time of what he called reformation or the coming of the Lord Jesus. Where in chapter 10, we learned a moment ago, he would offer his blood once and for all. And all throughout this epistle, there has been this reoccurring theme. Sin requires a blood sacrifice. And those sacrifices under the old covenant were inferior to the blessed permanent sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what's going to anchor? What's going to give assurance? That, the blood of the everlasting covenant. Christ's blood, not just any blood, the blood of the Lamb. Jesus' blood was the much anticipated, we've seen this in the past in this epistle, and the long sought after remedy that promised to crush the head of the serpent and set at liberty the captives. Do you recall? It was one of the, I think it was, it was at least for me, one of, the, one of the best sermons, one of the best studies in all of this. How it was that the blood of Christ in chapter 9, verse 15, served that pivotal role as if it were to be a gate to Sheol where all the Old Testament believers were held until his blood was shed and they could be set free, the text says, to receive their eternal inheritance. Oh, the blood of Christ. It's atoning, miraculous, supernatural, wondrous effects. But setting all of that aside, what, Pastor Dunn? What are you saying? Set aside what the seraphim Charles Spurgeon says and the cherubim can scarcely describe that which is contained in and efficacious through the blood of the Lamb? Yeah, set that aside for a moment because notice something closely with me in the text. Notice with me that the blood of Christ does not only... Oh, praise God that it does. But it not only atones for sin, giving us peace with God, but it is also foundational for consecrating us unto service to Him. Look at your Bibles. Verse 20. Now the peace of God. He begins His prayer. And He's, he's going down through it. Through the blood of the everlasting covenant. What's next? He makes His request. What's His request? Make you perfect in every good work. 
May the God of peace, a, 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 a paraphrase could be offered. It's, it's an appropriate paraphrase of a translation. May the God of peace, the God of police, well, he is over the police, but may the God of peace through the blood of the everlasting covenant, through that blood, make you perfect, make you mature in what? Every good work. The blood we see here is part of the means through which we are fitted, beloved. The blood not only atones for our sins, but it's also part of the means in which we are sanctified for lifelong obedience and service unto God. And why is this important? Oh, it's of paramount importance. Here's why. Because it is fundamentally what is different about the old covenant and the new covenant in which you and I experience by faith in that blood experientially. It's fundamentally the whole difference. We as new covenant believers, having faith in the atoning work granted to us by the Spirit in that blood, we serve God. Why? Because that blood has changed us. Amen? It's changed us from the inside out. But all of those, and there's many today, sadly, still under that old covenant system, serving God begrudgingly, serving God as a moral performance that they have to do to appease them so that whole, someday, talk to your Roman Catholic family members, hopefully someday, at the end, I'll find out that the scales they kind of teeter God more in my favor by what I've done. Oh, the bondage of the old covenant ways. You see, our works as new covenant believers, looking under that blood through which we are torn for and through which enlivens us, our works are alive by faith in the blood of the everlasting covenant. Their works, all of the works, even today, they're all dead. They're dead by unbelief. And guess what? If you keep operating under that system, that way of thinking, that minimizing of the power, the meritorious, glorious work of Christ on your behalf for your sins, guess what? That way of thinking, that old covenant, that system, that works-based religion, it does not, the letter, the inspired author has already said, it does not have the power to change you. You will be stuck with that ball and chain always reminded of how much you fail and how much there's still a smidgen of a chance that you won't inherit what Jesus promised to all of those who trust in Him as the great shepherd. Do you see how foundational this is? Oh, and anchoring our assurance in the new covenant realities which He was pointing them to and to never look back you may recall that this is what he was referring to back in chapter 6 to these people when he said, let us go on unto maturity, not laying again the foundations of repentance from dead works. They were actually, brothers and sisters, they were actually tempted to lay aside everything we just talked about in the blood of Jesus Christ in the gospel and what Jesus had promised them, obtained by faith. They were willing to lay that aside to go back to the dead works the uncertainty of what the other system offered them. Oh, dear friends, when God the Spirit reveals to you the blood of Christ, 
you gladly, amen, bear His yoke. You gladly take upon yourself whatever burden, whatever task, whatever call His Spirit or Word beckons you unto. You do not enter into it begrudgingly. Yes, we're of the flesh. And maybe halfway through you're going to say, I don't feel like doing this. Oh, but you look to the blood. You're reminded again and again and again of the great debt of gratitude you owe to the one who shed his life's blood for all of your grotesque iniquities. Spurgeon in his sermon on this text, or not this text, but on the aspect of the blood, he was just flashing before the congregation all of the transgressions against the blood that they have committed. Your blasphemies, your, your refusals to honor the Sabbath, your this, your that, your murders. He even goes down you know, to, the, to the man that's the most vilest murderer in the whole city. Oh, but when it's washed in the blood, all of your adulteries, when it's washed in the blood, all of your vile thoughts, all of your mischievous deeds, which bring upon you the proverb, the writer of the Proverbs tells us, the, the, the anger of God. What are some of the things that God hates? The one who devises evil schemes, right? Oh, but the blood, you see, it cleanses it all. It washes it all away. That's what compels us to keep going. Amen, brother? To the end. That's what compels us. It's not that I'm going to get extra brownie points up in heaven. It's not that I'm going to get an extra crown or a little jewel in my crown. It's none of that silly stuff. No. It's that heart of indebted love. Amen, sister? Gratitude to give unto the one who gave all for me what he is asking of my life. A new covenant and changed heart, a new covenant and a changed heart serves out of gratitude and thankfulness. An old, an old covenant heart can't help but serve with a heart full of grumbling and complaining. Well, prior to getting to verse 21, which is where he's going to make his request, he's got to bring forward this fifth, you could say, encouragement out of the text. What is it? Well, it's a reference of the everlasting covenant. The everlasting covenant. This is the fifth thing that was supposed to, as he's focusing their attention upon that, encourage them in everything that he's already said. There's several places of mentioning this everlasting covenant in Scripture that we could go to to obtain a glimpse that really shows us the eternal love. The eternal covenant, whatever you consider it, always is going to reflect back to you as a mirror the eternal love. Of the great shepherd. We don't have time, but one such place, as you all know, my favorite place to go is John 17. Because in the high priestly prayer of Jesus that he's offering up to the Father, we get this glimpse of this mentioning of an eternal, long time ago, Lord Hannah, before you were ever even thought of, way back in eternity past, before time ever began, we see in John 17 Jesus praying to the Father. And he's praying to the Father and he's speaking in a way that teaches us that there was an eternal agreement. There was an eternal compact, a covenant, by which they agreed to save sinners such as you and I. In this intimate portion of Scripture where we get to see the Son actually speaking to the Father, I'll just read these two verses we hear of this. He says, I have, speaking to the Father, Jesus speaking here, I have, John 17, 4 and 5, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. 
And now, O Father, glorify thou, with me, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. In just that portion of the high priestly prayer, beloved, we gather in part that there was some eternal agreement or covenant that existed between God the Son and God the Father regarding the salvation of sinners. It is a sad thing if one understands their salvation in Christ not connected with this eternal plan of the eternal covenant. This eternal covenant, this eternal agreement between the Father and the Son to save your soul, it's a truth that magnifies the eternal love of God for all the whosoevers that come to Christ by faith. The truth is intended to encourage faith when it's weak. The eternal, predestinated, pre-planned of God is encouraged when it comes up in Scripture to strengthen the feeble knees of the saints. To strengthen the, the limp arms that are hanging down trying to run the race. That's what it does for us, amen. When we read of how Jesus eternally designed in the scheme of the Godhead to give his life as a ransom for us. It ought not to cause us to cross our arms and puff out our lips and say, what, you mean I didn't have a choice? <laughs> I have never heard anybody who was indebted and who actually saw the blood of Christ spilt for them respond in such a hideous way about the eternal covenant, the eternal love of God. Someone who's truly been changed when they further understand that what they experienced in their life actually was something that was agreed upon in eternity past. Guess what it does? It reassures them of God's plan. It strengthens their faith. It pushes away doubts. Oh, wow. God is sovereign. He is majestic. He is everything. And he knew from eternity past that he would send his spirit to open up the deadness of my heart and give me faith. What a glorious God I serve. That's what it does. And this is why it's working its way in at the close of this letter. Well, having provided these five important truths, and I'm running so much out of time, we have to go quickly. Having provided five important truths to build upon, to strengthen the assurance in the gospel, the one that they professed and they believed, he now comes to his request. Look at verse 21 with me. The request is that this God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. In the request of verse 22, I want us to see two things that are important. What is the thing needed and who, what person has the ability to supply the need? Well, the thing needed, we see clearly, is that which this pastor brings forth to the surface that every true believer who has been saved by grace knows to be true about themselves. The thing that's needed, what is it, beloved? Is your continued perfection. The 
Authorized version translates it perfect, perfect, every per, make you perfect. Uh, the newer translations, I think this is a fine translation. It says, may the Lord equip you, uh, prepare you, complete you, mature you is the idea. And so everyone who's been saved by grace knows I'm not complete. I'm not mature as I could be mature. I'm not, you know, uh, there are those days where I am kind of getting up and serving in the capacity of gratitude and indebtedness to the Lord Jesus Christ and the realities of the new covenant. I do kind of grumble and I do kind of complain. Oh, God, help me, right? We're all here. We all can attest to that. We all at times can share the heart and the thought of the Apostle Paul in Romans 7.19 where he cried out, For the good that I would, I do not do. But the evil which I would not do, that I do. Many of us know all too well the reality of our two natures at odds within us as described in Galatians chapter 5. Where Paul says, the flesh, the old man, the the former converted you, the the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and they are contrary with one another so that you cannot do the things that you would. While we are technically completely justified and covered by the meritorious blood of Christ in the eyes of God, that's what this epistle has been all about. You are justified and saved by Christ and Christ alone. We nonetheless, we see in this request, in a practical sense, need to grow as Christians. We need to mature. We need to be perfected. The grace is freely given to us. But there is in a sense where we experientially need to mature. This is why in 2 Peter 3.18, he tells us, grow, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We grow in several ways. We grow by the means of grace which God gives us to utilize so that we will mature. We will become more perfected. We will receive and suffer words of exhortation. He gives us prayer. He gives us the study of Scripture. He gives us the opportunity in most places, even in China, they they do it secretly, but He gives us the glorious opportunity to meet every Lord's Day, to fellowship, talk of the things of the Lord, encourage one another in the things of the faith. These means of grace that God gives His children are the means by which He will perfect you and let me correct any misguided understanding of sanctification in your converted minds where there is not a utilization of the means of grace, you should not and do not expect God to mature you or perfect you. You will be the one who was admonished in this epistle who was drinking milk after years being converted and you should be eating meat. You remember the exhortation, how harsh it was? He came to them and he said, You're, I, I believe he's talking to the church of Jerusalem, you are the church of Jerusalem. You were the one the, among the very first disciples of Jesus Christ entrusted with the purity of His atoning work on the cross and the glorious culmination of what God has been telling our fathers for all of these centuries. And you should be serving meat. And I'm having to take you back to the basics as if you can only drink milk. You remember, you can almost see this, this pastor along with his other pastors. Why are we even having to go here? It was evident, wasn't it? 
They weren't searching the Scriptures like the Bereans. They weren't on their face praying and going over in their minds and their closet with Christ of who He is, what He has done. In prayer, brother, it's reconfirmed within us the faith that the Spirit's given us. The Spirit supernaturally plants that seed of saving faith within your heart and a prayerless life is doing what? Not watering that seed. Not pruning that seed. Not adding nutrition to that seed. It's starving the seed. It's a miracle all but by the grace of God. Will any prayerless Christian ever make it into the kingdom of God? Escaping it, Paul says, the very flames of hell. How are you going to grow? How is God going to work in you? It's not magic. It's not by osmosis. It's by Him birthing within your heart the new man who's here today. And the new man who says, yes, amen in Christ. And the new man who understands, oh, this is how I will grow, how I will be fortified against the attacks of Satan, against the attacks of my own worst enemy, my flesh. By staying in the Word, studying the Word, understanding how all the beautiful doctrines of the Word work together. There's so many. Let me just say this, brothers and sisters, on a very practical level, um, this does not mean you have to buy John Owen's biblical theology and start reading the tome works of you know, the, Pur- the Prince of Puritans, John Owen. It doesn't mean that you have to get from PBHB, even though we would like you to. It doesn't mean you have to buy John Gill's scholastic works that are academic level. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that. It means you get a Bible study of one book of the Bible and start there. And just start reading and studying that one book of the Bible, a commentary in that Bible. Uh, I was talking to her this week, and they they were telling me that they had uh, bought a commentary on the book of Revelation, and they were just reading it as part of their devotional time. So, you know, they're reading through the book of Revelation, and they got next to their, their Bible, they got a commentary, and they're kind of studying it that way. What is that man wanting to do? He's wanting to better understand the Word of God and be perfected for the work that God has in store for him. Well... This draws our attention in the request that not only is there a thing needed, and we all would say yes and amen, there is indeed a thing needed, but who is the person who's going to supply the need? We see who the person is. He says, may the God of peace equip you. May the God of peace work in you. By this understanding, we know, beloved, that any actions we do in studying the Scriptures... Attending church services amongst the fellowship of the saints, praying in and for ourselves. That's not what fundamentally matures us. But wait a minute, Pastor Doug, you just said utilize the means of grace and that's how you're going to grow. I did say that, absolutely. And I stand by it. And I got a bunch of scripture that can back me up. That is how you grow. You will not grow if you don't do it. But that, your actions do not mature you. Your actions are not what's saving you. God, through those actions, God, through those means of grace, you see, God is the one through Jesus Christ who receives the glory forever and ever. Amen. There is not a person who's diligently using and feeding upon and nourishing themselves through the means of grace that walk away saying, you know, well, if they do, they can't go to the New Testament and find any validation from the Lord Jesus. They can't like the Pharisees and say, I've read the Bible in a year. Don't you love those people when you meet them, you know? Here your Bible reading program has been, let's just say, a little bit lax and you haven't, you know, gotten through the whole Bible and they're telling you, I just finished up reading the Bible in a whole year and this is the third time I've done it. And 
you know what I mean? It's almost portrayed to you like they're proud of themselves. You know what I'm saying? What they're failing to see is, like I said to you earlier, you just begin at your own pace studying the Word of God and, and, and doing it from a sincere heart. And God, through that exercise, He will do that work in you. And you will walk away with any kind of fruit in your life. And you would say, He deserves all the glory and the praise. And this pastor knew this. This was the heart of this pastor. He was wanting to make sure as he moved forward, as they moved forward as a church, that they would be utilizing the means of grace by which God would perfect them. In verse 22, I believe that this, based on a previous sermon in verses 18 to 19 and connected with verse 17 where he told to obey, the, uh, obey those who rule over you, I believe this is another clue that there was a little bit of tension. He says, I, uh, I beseech you, I'm entreating you, brethren. He knows what he wrote would have been offensive to those who thought that they were correct in their own thinking about justification. And he's, he's really admonished them very, very sternly. He says, I beseech you, I'm, I'm, I'm entreating you. Brethren, suffer the words of this exhortation, for I have written a letter unto you in a few words. And then he goes into verse 23, um, and he describes some of the things that are kind of going on in the historical context. Look with me, he says, Know ye that our brother Timothy, this is why many people believe Paul wrote this, this is one little clue. Timothy was a very close associate with the Apostle Paul, and so... Whoever wrote this, they were close to Timothy. They had some awareness of what was going on with Timothy. It could be that they both were in prison together and Timothy is the one being released. Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty. It is referring to prison. With whom, if he comes shortly, I will see you. Salute all them that have the rule over you. They, it is believed that this church was dispersed. They were persecuted. Their homes have been burned. Salute all of them that have the rule over you, wherever they are at, the elders, the pastors that are there who are intended to be under shepherds of the great shepherd to watch for their souls, uh, steer and, and chart the course of faithfulness straight and true. He says, greet them that have the rule over you and all the other saints. They of Italy salute you. Some believe that this is either because the epistles being written from Italy or that they are around people that are uh, in Italy. The Jerusalem church could have been scattered as far as Italy, some believe. Grace be with you all. Amen. Well, I had planned on a longer conclusion at the end of this epistle. Um, boy, it's hot in here. Uh, and, and I thought, you know what? What, a glor what could you say at the end of such an epistle? Uh, there are so many Christ-exalting things you know, that have been portrayed. And I would conclude this way. We see in this epistle one of the most exalted views of Jesus in all of the technical realities and doctrines that Jesus fulfilled. This book connects for us wonderfully so much the Old Testament with the New Testament. You remember how he was pointing how all those things were just shadows, but Christ fulfilled it. He was bringing up Melchizedek and all these figures. He's, he used Psalms repeatedly, uh, describing how the Psalms, all these prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so the epistle of Hebrews, it ought to be a staple book, a staple letter to which you would go to whenever there is any confusion 
about the religion of Judaism and the religion of Christianity. There should be, this should be where you would go to, to get some clarity, to, 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 to get some wherewithal about who's correct or who's trying to steer you the wrong way. But oh, as we've seen today, this is the epistle you go to as well, beloved, to be reminded of your continual need for sanctification. None of us are above the one who strayed too far, who is being warned about in the scripture. Stay close to the cross. Stay close to the doctrine of justification. Stay close to the body of Christ. He said, do not forsake the assembling of the saints. Stay close. The, 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 the devils and all his legion of demons are described as roaring lions seeking whom they may devour. We are described today as the sheep. And I don't care how much theology you know, how long you've been a, Christ, a Christian, you're still a sheep. Sheep, you know, are known to be kind of dumb at times. They're kind of known to wonder out and just graze around and end up in the highways in front of a Mack truck. That was pretty, don't get that picture out of your head, but you get the point, you know. That's who we are, beloved. And we come to these truths and we're anchored, we're admonished, and none of us should be rebelling or having a cold shoulder to it. We all should say, yes, oh God, I need it. I need every bit of, I need to suffer every bit of the words of exhortation. And help me persevere to the very end, looking to Christ all the way. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Father, Lord, we bless you and we thank you for, Lord, giving us this epistle. Thank you, Lord, that this letter which was written to the early Christians was preserved and it was kept pure and included in our Bible so that we could come to it and we could learn, oh, that we could be edified, we could be strengthened in our faith, and we would be better equipped to move forward, Lord, in this race that you've called us unto. Lord, I pray that you would use today's message, God, to help us, uh, lead us and direct us, steer us on that straight and narrow path, Father, of following Jesus Christ, our great shepherd. We give you the glory, we give you all the honor for what you have done, what you are now doing in our lives and what you promise to continue to do as we exercise and utilize your blessed means of grace that you have given to us. We thank you, Father, and we give you all the glory for you are so worthy. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.